Please open your Bible for this morning's reading to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. We can remain standing while we read God's Word. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Did that psych you out? Don't want us, us little family to get in a rut now. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. For if the whole body were an eye, or the sense of hearing, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Today I'm delighted to tell you that God has sent a new family to formally, officially, publicly tell you that they would like to be part of this church family. These are my friends Daniel and Amy Nelson. Would you please make them feel welcome? Father, we just read that you put the members in the body where it pleases you. That means that with the Nelson's arrival, we have new strength and capacities that we previously did not have until they came. And also, Lord, that they will have needs that the rest of us are here to supply, and they will have burdens that the rest of us are here to bear with them when the time comes. Give us grace to love you and love each other. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning on Facebook, this font of all human wisdom in the 21st century, <laughs> I said that I was going to preach a countercultural message, that it would be biblical too, and that after two years of what we've been going through, it was urgent. Please don't answer aloud because I don't want to get a whole thing started, but when you hear me say that the message is countercultural, is there anything in particular you wish I would talk about next? Because we've all got our hot buttons, don't we? Just look on Facebook. You can see what, what, hot, what hot buttons people are currently interested in. What I'm going to share with you today is so obvious, so common to Scripture, so clear in Scripture, that to you it may not seem countercultural at all, especially to you because you're actually here. 
I'd like to talk to you today about the church and explain to you, it's going to get a little geeky here at the very beginning, explain to you what the church actually is because there's a great deal of confusion about what the church actually means, who's in it, what it's supposed to be doing, how you're a part of it, or whether it's even important. It's been a long trend in this direction, but Americans are less religious publicly with their faith. Everybody will always claim to be spiritual. But in terms of identifying with any known, non-highly personalized matter of faith, manner of faith in whatever path that is, more Americans are saying that they are nuns when they're asked on the survey if they belong to any particular faith tradition or family. Many more are saying simply none, none at all. And others are creating what one article I read called their, their own little version. The woman giving the answer was named Sheila, and she said, I'm a practitioner of Sheilaism. <laughs> I've got my, own, got my own thing. Now, most people aren't clever and clear enough to say that, but that's frankly the way most of us live. And the pandemic has made that urgent because fully 30% less now of practicing Christians, according to demographers, using these terms, practicing Christians. In other words, not nominal Christians, but people who are actually involved and engaged with the church and claim publicly to be Christians to other people. Fully a third of them are no longer attending church. In other words, the degradation and devaluation of the church accelerated by a time of lockdown and mass and distancing and in our case a tent that was out on the parking lot for nearly a year those are fun times remember the day it rained <laughs> remember the day I proved my mom right and I was too dumb to come in out of the rain <laughs> after two years of being able to watch it on YouTube anytime you pleased and just get good biblical content from the best preachers in your language what the Bible has called the church, what the Bible speaks of across the New Testament as the church, is in the sight of many Americans, including practicing Christians, something of no particular importance. So whether you're here in the room or you're watching us online, welcome and let me tell you what the church is. What does the church mean anyway? Well, the Bible's word is in Greek, and the Bible's word is ekklesia. And that means, according to two Notable scholars and a standard reference of the Greek language of the Bible. This is the geeky part. Bear with me. Pay attention. I promise it matters. Ecclesia means, according to these two scholars, a congregation of Christians implying interacting membership. In other words, in the New Testament, an ecclesia, a congregation, a church, was a group of people who knew they belonged not only to Jesus, but they also belonged to each other. They knew each other and they dealt with one another. These scholars go on to say the term ecclesia, and this is very important, bear with the geekiness, I promise it counts. The term ecclesia was in common usage for several hundred years before the Christian era. In other words, Christians did not make up that term. They adopted it from the existing language and culture of the time. And the word ecclesia, the word church, the word congregation, if you will, was used to refer to an assembly of persons constituted by well-defined membership. In other words, there was a line, such as the Nelsons crossed this morning, 
where they said, I belong not only to Jesus, I also belong with you. It's the difference between the crowd at Chick-fil-A and a group of Boy Scouts going to Chick-fil-A. The crowd are just customers unknown to one another. The troop went together. They belong to each other. They have adopted values and leadership, and they have a common cause somewhere, somehow. The cause at the moment just happens to be good chicken sandwiches. (laughs) Here's what that looks like in the New Testament. Here's a snapshot of the first Christian church. Acts 2, verse 42, just a few dozen days after the resurrection of Jesus, it tells us this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The Christians who were baptized when they heard the gospel, believed in Jesus, and their response collectively Notice that it's plural. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they kept listening to the apostles teach them about Jesus. They also devoted themselves to fellowship, to a life together. They also devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, which in this context certainly refers to the Lord's Supper, to communion. And they devoted themselves, finally it says, to what? The prayers. They did not only belong to Jesus, they publicly belonged to one another, including they took up Jesus' command to be baptized. And they did that in public in front of thousands of people, many of them skeptics, many of them their enemies, many of them their future persecutors, identifying not only with Jesus, but with one another. And the countercultural part is this. And this is literally a book in print and a very common phrase in the church world that I live in. People love Jesus, they just don't love the church. Have you heard that? I'm into Jesus, it's just the church I can't stand. The New Testament itself knows nothing of that. Does the New Testament church get along? No. They sue each other. They fight with one another. They racially discriminate against each other. Never idealize the New Testament church. If you read the letters of Paul, the bulk of them is settling problems. He tells the Corinthian church, literally, don't make me get the rod out again. I'm on my way. Do you want me to be cool or do you want me to come and beat some sense into you? He's angry about it. But all through the New Testament, The church that Jesus founded, by Jesus' definition, by Jesus' purpose and plan, God's plan is for every Christian to be a committed part of a congregation. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They were baptized, and they were added publicly to the number of believers. They crossed the line publicly, and it cost them. Let's talk, please, about the New Testament church. God's plan is for every Christian to be a committed part of a congregation. Listen to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. It should be there in your bulletin. In fact, we can read this together. Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25. Do you read this together, please? It says, And let us consider... 
how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The book of Hebrews is a simple and beautiful letter, most likely a long sermon, to tell persecuted Jews who had believed in Jesus and who were considering committing themselves to Jesus to not return to the synagogue and to the Mosaic law and forsake Jesus. The message of Hebrews is simple. Jesus is better. He's a better priest. He's better than Moses. He is the one Savior that God sent to us. He spoke to us, it says in the beginning. He spoke to our ancestors for a very long time through the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. No one else is coming. No better Savior ever could come. The Savior has already come. No one is coming for you now. If we neglect such a great salvation, we will not escape. That's the thread of warning running all the way through Hebrews because these Christians are beginning to pay the price for their public identification with Jesus. They've gone missing in their old religious ways and the culture is noticed and the culture is starting to push back. So what is the admonition right at the end of the letter? Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Showing up to the meeting, going completely private was already happening in the first century. That is not what we are to do. Rather, we are to encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In the last two years, I've had more people say to me, we're living in the last days than in my entire pastorate put together. Hebrews says, the closer the day gets, the more we commit. This is not the time to don the white robe and go sit on a hill somewhere. This is a time to bear down and to get close, close to the Lord and close to each other. Not neglecting, not forsaking, not walking away from fellowship with other believers, but meeting to carefully consider one another to see how we can stimulate each other to continue living for Jesus. Horizon Pregnancy Clinic offers one example. We heard about that ministry from a lady we didn't know several years ago. And from her single testimony, everything that could happen as a result of that ministry has happened. A young woman in our church, and I'll never forget it, years ago, spoke about her own abortion. How traumatizing it was. How she first heard of Horizon Pregnancy Clinic in the church and how that drew her to tell others what she dared tell no one. How Jesus met with her and healed her and assured her of his love and forgiveness. How that caused her to begin to volunteer and to help other people. This is how it happens. It doesn't happen through sermons alone. We stimulate, we encourage, we know one another, and we provoke one another. We encourage one another to love and good works. And if we truly think these are urgent, dangerous days, that's the reason we get closer together, not farther apart. I'd like you to hear the, the opinion of two Christian theologians, two statesmen from very different traditions within the Christian faith, one in, Ar one in Arminian, the other a Calvinist, but both reflecting on the church. Roger Olson said this, 
Nowhere in the great tradition of Christianity can one find the uniquely modern phenomenon of churchless Christians. It doesn't exist. A churchless Christian is a contradiction. It simply does not exist in Scripture or until very, very recently, the 2,000-year history of the Christian church. John Stott, the great Anglican theologian, pastor, missionary speaker, student leader, theologian of All Souls Church in London. I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person, for the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. Whoa. I thought it was kind of this club where they hired a few people who went to seminary or Bible college who wanted to help people but weren't skilled enough to do it in a medical kind of way, didn't want to be bothered with counseling. And we came and we heard and we listened and we grow and then we just go off and live our lives. Remember, this is a third week in a series of spiritual growth. The first week was read your Bible. The second week was pray. Those are first and most individual disciplines. It's you and God. I have to tell you, though, the bulk of the New Testament regarding the way Christians grow is not in fellowship solitary with God, but having had that fellowship with God through the Bible and through prayer, then you go out to his body. Then you go out and you commit yourselves to your brothers and sisters. You find someone whose burden needs bearing. You find someone to love and trust enough to share with them part of your burden. John Stott says, massively influential Christian. And he's telling you the truth. It's not an appeal to authority. I'm quoting him because he's right. He says, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. And if that seems a little bit too strong for you, you'll say, that sounds exactly the sort of thing a pastor would say. Because <laughs> I know some of you are going, hey, I know you care about the church because you have to be here. You've given your life to this thing. It's literally your job. You have no idea how the rest of us live. I know that's running through some of your minds. I'll grant you this much. You may be completely right. You may be. But whatever, my profession, my preference, my style is, when Stott says the church is at the very center of God's purpose and plan, he's right. And Paul says it with language that it will actually be a little hard for you to understand because it's so mind-blowing in Ephesians chapter 3. Now there's a word that's going to crop up here, and it's the word mystery. And it's a word that wasn't translated from the Greek New Testament. They just brought it over into English. And Paul's going to tell you exactly what it means, but I'll tell you on the front side so that you can have some idea where he's headed before he gets to the payoff in verse 6. A mystery here means a truth that was always part of God's plan, but revealed to people only when he chose to unveil it. In Paul's language, a mystery is something unknown and secret to everyone in the universe except God. 
And when God wants to, he pulls back the curtain and people see what God has always known and what God has always planned. And it's this big aha moment. Now he's writing to the Ephesians. This is a group of people in this ancient city of Ephesus. And Paul is giving them the stunning countercultural news that God, through the sacrifice of Jesus, has torn down the wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles who hated each other for generations. An Orthodox, Bible keeping, synagogue attending Jew was about as excited about meeting a Gentile as you would be about meeting a leper at a swimming pool. It was that repulsive and that offsetting to him. And what Paul spends all of his time telling the church at Ephesus is that they are now united in Christ. And they are equal. The Gentiles are now equal fellow heirs, fellow partners, brothers and sisters with the Jews. Ephesians 3 verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. In other words, I, an ultra-Orthodox Jew, am in jail because of you. Verse 2, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery, that secret known to God alone, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Got it so far? Men and women followed God for centuries, never knowing that he intended to save the whole world. Verse 6. This mystery, this truth known only to God and revealed to me right now, and I'm sharing it with you is what Paul is saying, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same, what's it say? body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, which means good news, of this good news, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Don't miss verse 10. Everybody with me in your Bible in verse 10? So that through the church, through the what now? Through the congregation, through that little ragtag group of people who have decided to belong not only to Jesus but to each other. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might, be now, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 10 is something we're circling and remembering in your Bible. Paul says that through the congregation... Through the ordinary gathering of people who just trusted Jesus to save them from their sins and are meeting in someone's house 2,000 years ago because a dedicated church building did not exist for centuries. 
The early life of the church was gathered naturally in people's homes and in big public spaces like the temple. And they showed up and they knew, unless there was a traitor and a persecutor among them, I, a Jew, I, a Gentile, have been rescued from my previous belief. And I believe in Jesus and you and I are together. And there's just 22 of us and only two of us know how to read. But we have a letter here from Paul who's explaining again the good news to us here. Sit down. This man here who was just appointed our pastor by one of Paul's helpers three weeks ago, he's going to read it and he's going to explain it to us. And there's somebody new here. He's tired of the paganism. He's tired of the sacrifices. He's tired of the alcoholism. He's tired of the out-of-control sexuality that circulates in our religions. He wants to listen to. That's the early church. This is just a 21st century expression of it that we're in here now. Paul says that in the congregation, through the congregation, through the ecclesia, through that mutually known group of believers, large or small, in any town, city, or village, through the congregation, the manifold wisdom of God might be now might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What in the world does that mean? Ephesians chapter 6 is much more famous. Paul says we don't have a struggle against flesh and blood. We have a struggle against what? Rulers and authorities, powers in heavenly places. You understand what verse 10 is saying? It's stunning. Jesus points at a little church in Mexico filled with impoverished people. Jesus points at this ordinary church on the corner in Huntington Beach and says, look what I did. It's amazing. Jesus shows off to angels. God shows his manifold wisdom to angels through us. I won't tell the stories, but because I don't want to embarrass them, some of them are here. But I love some of you, and the only reason any of some of you and I would have ever met is Jesus. We grew up so different. Our stories are headed in completely opposite directions. From different ethnic groups, different socioeconomic conditions, different assumptions. What tied us together? Why do I love so many people in this church, young and old, so different from myself? There's just one reason. Jesus. Why do you love me and why do you love each other in return? Jesus. Only Jesus could do this. People from every ethnic group are saved by Jesus and united in his body, the church. The fact that Jews and Gentiles belong to Jesus and belong to one another was a mind-blowing idea in the first century. And I'll tell you something, it still is. It is still amazing, it is still difficult, it is still astonishing that people so different could be actual brothers and sisters that in our ordinary humdrum ragtag lives could be used by God to point to the angels in heaven, I think both holy angels and demons, and say, look what I've done. You want to see how wise and strong I am? Look at these people, see how different they are, see how much they once hated each other. Here's an example from American history. 
in Christmas in this church, we sang a Christmas hymn, and we sang, the slave is our brother. Did you know that was not sung in the South? Slave owners clipped that verse from the hymn. They did not believe that the slave could be their brother. What ended slavery in America? It came through terrible bloodshed. But the idea behind it was that men were made by the image of God and loved alike in Christ and that anyone, black, white, or any other hue, could be saved by the grace of Jesus. That's the power of the gospel. Why in the world should middle-class, suburban, American Christians in the 21st century care about a young American couple named Thompson who's headed to Mongolia? What sense does that make? You've never even met them, and you don't know it, but we've already sent them thousands of dollars to help them get there. Why care? Because someday Jesus will gather Mongolians and Americans and Africans and Asians and Latin Americans and every other combination in between. You can read it in the book of Revelation. He will gather them around his throne and they together will worship God and his son and our savior Jesus Christ and the nations together will praise God for what Jesus did. That's the wisdom of the church. So this is not the sort of thing that we dare forsake or that we dare individualize saying, I'll listen to a sermon, I'll read my Bible, and I'll be all on my own. No, not part of God's plan. And I'll show it to you quickly in Ephesians chapter 5. This is actually the sermon. (laughs) I know, surprising, right? Mildly upsetting. Look in Ephesians chapter 5. Everybody knows Ephesians chapter 5 is about marriage, right? It is. But I wonder if you've read the theological, the cosmic, the foundational basis that Paul uses to talk about marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, look in verse 25, please. Husbands, love your wives as, what's it say? And what do you do for her? He gave himself up for. Here's why every Christian should belong to and love a church because Jesus died for the church. See, here's the the countercultural part because we're so fiercely individualistic. We've created such a customized culture in America that the Bible says, we and we hear I. Jesus didn't just die for you individually. He died for us. He died so that this could happen. If Jesus were interested in saving individuals alone, he would not have created the church. Everyone would just have their personalized faith and they would follow Jesus according to their own understanding. But from the very beginning and the things he gave us to do called baptism and communion, we need each other. Paul told the Corinthians, when you gather as a church for communion, Jesus told the disciples, you baptize them. It doesn't say anywhere, go baptize yourself. It always requires somebody else. Why? It's not priestly. It's not sacramental where one guy's authorized and that's the only way it counts. From the very beginning, from the ordinances of the church, Jesus wants us to know we belong together. He died for us. 
Not merely as individuals, but he died for his body, the church. He died to bring us together. Listen to Paul in Acts 20. He's talking now to the pastors of Ephesus. I just read to you from his letter. Now his little pep talk before he leaves them for the last time. He says to the pastors in Ephesus, this is a verse that rings in my heart as your pastor. Here's my marching orders. Here's part of my job description. Pay careful attention to yourselves, he said to the pastors. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church, the congregation, the assembly of God, which he obtained, what's it say? This isn't my church. I'm part of it. I dare not misuse it. I dare not mistreat you. You belong to God. He bought you with his blood. The congregation, the assembly belongs to God. And we're in a season because of the pandemic where people go, ah, you know, I've got my faith. I don't need the church. Here's the point. Jesus isn't dating the church and neither should we. He calls the, he calls the church, the Bible calls the church, his body and his bride. He's not casually dating the congregation. No, he's committed to it. Keep reading Ephesians chapter 5, please. Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's not even about marriage. That's all about Jesus and the church. Here comes the application. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does. What's it say? The church, because we are members of his body. Jesus not only died for the church, he nourishes it right now. If you've ever felt the grace of God in a small group, in a counseling session, in this church worship service, it is because Jesus is alive. He cares for his church and he nourishes it. He loves his church. He gave himself for her. And Jesus not only died for the church, he lives for it right now. Jesus is alive for the sake of his church right now. He's interceding for you. He's interceding for us. He will someday take all the little assemblies and gather it together into one final, complete, and glorified assembly. He will remain even then the head of the church. We will always be, as it says here, part of his body. And the final thing is that God and Jesus is glorified in it. Paul says in verse 30, we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to what? Christ and the church. Christian marriage is just a picture of something much bigger. Something that will go on forever. Jesus said there will be no marriage in heaven. What will there be in heaven? The assembly the body of Christ, now fully sanctified, now fully washed, cleansed, ready in relationship, in enjoyment for him. Look back with me in chapter 3 and we'll be done. God is glorified in the church. 
Ephesians chapter 3. I want to show you where I was reading again. Ephesians chapter 3 says, I read to you the first 11 verses of this chapter. Paul goes on to pray for them that God will give them the capacity to understand what he has told them. That they will know how much they are loved. That Christ, verse 17, will dwell in their hearts through faith. That with verse 18, they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm praying that you get this. You slaves, you free, you illiterates, you rich, you poor, you well-dressed, and you barefoot who came together on a Sunday morning to hear one man explain the gospel he had just believed himself. I hope you can all understand how much God loves you. I'm praying that you'll get it. You'll need God to work a miracle for you to know how much he loves you. And then he says in verse 20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work with us, within us, to him be the glory where? In the church, in the assembly, in the congregation, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. How does God get the glory? Well, we keep coming together to love and to serve one another the way Jesus loved and served us. That's what the second half of Ephesians is about. Look in Ephesians 4. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Wow. But, Paul says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Look down to verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up what now? The body of Christ, the church, the congregation. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we, notice, collectively, we as a group, we as a congregation, we as people who are humble toward each other and bear with one another and love one another, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the what? The body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You can't grow to full maturity in Christ without the body of Christ. The American invention that you can do kind of an independent study and it's just you and Jesus is unknown to Jesus. He not only gave us himself, he gave us each other. And as I've been telling you every week, if you really want to grow to the full maturity described here so that you're no longer a little kid getting knocked around by every new wave of doctrine, every new book, conference, trend, whatever Oprah says next week, if you want to be done with all that, 
You not only need, by Jesus' design, you not only need Jesus, you need the gifts of Jesus, which are found in his local assembly. Somebody says, I'm part of the universal church. It's nonsense. Let me explain and I'll be done. If I said to you, we here at Crosspoint love the family, would you ask me which one? No. We love the institution of the family. We love the idea of the family. But the only way we can show love to a family and help a family is to do it, guess what? One family at a time. That's what the universal church is. It's an idea that Jesus died for. But it is manifested in local congregations just like ours. Literally, God help us. Look around. This is it. This is us. This is what Jesus is doing. Jesus up in heaven by his own power in fellowship with the Father. The Father is looking at the angels saying, see these people? That's what my son did. He died and rose for them. He lives to give them strength now. So don't back down. Don't get discouraged. Don't get your feelings hurt. Don't get upset. Well, you will get upset. But when you get upset, remember how Jesus forgave you. You forgive others. That's in Ephesians chapter 4. And you make it to the meeting. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for our time together. Thank you for sending the Nelsons to us and many other hundreds of families that you have sent to this, your body. God, you placing the members where you want them. Help me and my fellow pastors to shepherd the flock well, remembering that we are merely part of it. You alone are its head and its foundation. And help us, Lord, in this time of disunity nationally, of chaos, of disruption, where sickness, illness, fear make it harder for us to gather in person. Let us live together in life with you and life with each other as you intended so that you may be able, Father, to turn to the angels and receive the glory you are due because you saved us and united us in the blessed holy body of your Son, Jesus Christ, which is the local church. I pray this and thank you for this in Jesus' name and Crosspoint said, amen. amen. Church, I love you. If you have questions about the faith, if you have questions about what I've said, the card is the best way to let me know. Give that card on your way out. God bless you. I will see you soon.